Hi, I'm Krista Lusage. This is the Just Be Podcast, where we discuss matters of justice and particularly biblical equality. If you haven't noticed, we're switching up the music a little bit this week, so I hope you enjoy it. Whether you are a regular listener or if this is your first time checking out this podcast, I want you to know that I appreciate you tuning in. It is such an honor to have you here. I wish I could share all of this content with you in person over a cup of coffee and we could exchange ideas and questions. I really do. But one way that we actually can connect is via the Just Be podcast Facebook page. And another is via a voice message. And I will provide the link to both options in the show notes. I'd love to hear your feedback, ideas for the show, questions and comments. When I was preparing for today's show, I opened the study Bible I used as a middle and high school student. Now, whenever there was a passage that just didn't make any sense to me, I'd underline it and put a question mark in the margin, as if to leave a little bookmark to myself saying, figure this one out later. Well, it certainly is later. I mean, decades later. And let me tell you, I'm happy to say that this passage finally makes more sense to me in light of what I know about the gospel. Maybe you also have a question mark or queasy feeling in regards to this particular passage. And it's my hope that we can begin to get some more clarity on this topic today. The Bible text we're going to study today is the one where Paul says things like, depending on your translation, the head of the woman is man. A woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's just as though her head were shaved. Man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And this one's a doozy. The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So, yeah, that passage. It has a ton of potential landmines in it, and we're going to dive in. And if you can, hang in with me here for the rest of this episode, not only so you don't have to feel awkward every time you read this, but also so you can help shed light on this passage to other people who may be wondering what all is being implied here in this passage as well. It's important to do this because a reader could take this passage to make false assumptions on things like, Somehow women are not as much made in the image and glory of God. That they must cover their heads every time they pray. That women were created for the sake of men and their needs. And that women need to be under the authority of men. By way of introduction, throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been offering all kinds of advice concerning the particular issues that Christians in Corinth were concerned about. On issues like having an affair with your mother-in-law, Paul was pretty clear. But for specific issues like whether or not one should get married, eat meat that was originally part of a pagan sacrifice, or wear certain head coverings, Paul offers more nuanced advice. In general, as he addresses these particular culturally charged issues, he recommends that they balance their new freedom in Christ with being sensitive to the ways that their actions will be perceived by others. He says in chapter 9, starting at verse 19, For though I am free, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
Paul doesn't want secondary issues to cause confusion for those still learning about the gospel. He doesn't want us to misrepresent the gospel or inadvertently exclude or mislead people by participating in something that gives people the wrong impression. Whether or not a woman should wear a veil or head covering was one of those issues in the Corinthian church. By way of personal example, about 30 years ago, when my parents packed up the whole family and moved us to West Africa to be missionaries for a year, my mom didn't bring any pants. Don't worry, she had clothes, but she was told ahead of time that in this culture, the only women who wore pants were prostitutes. Even though she had the freedom in Christ to wear whatever she wanted, she wanted to make sure that she didn't give off any false impressions, look kind of stupid, or even damage her reputation or the reputation of the seminary her and my dad were teaching at. So she wore skirts instead of pants. She went with the culture on the small stuff so she could have an impact on the big stuff. That's what it looks like to balance your freedom in Christ while serving the reputation and honor of those around you. That's the heart of Paul for believers. Don't be legalistic about your freedom, but don't be unnecessarily weird or offensive either. Taking into consideration the way others perceive you is an important part of any missional strategy. This is an important point to keep in mind as we explore today's passage. With all of this in mind, I'm going to begin reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 32 in the NIV. We'll move through the passage point by point, eventually all the way to chapter 11, verse 16. Follow along at home if you can. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So far, so good. Nothing too crazy here. Great advice and affirmations from Paul. Now continuing on to verse 3, we read, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Ooh, so wait a minute. What is Paul saying here? Clearly, he's drawing some kind of metaphor involving the word head. So let's talk about it. In this passage, a particular Greek word for head is used, kephale. Say it with me, kephale. Good. In English, when we say someone is the head, we tend to think of someone as being the top dog, headmaster, head coach, captain, etc. We automatically think about hierarchy and authority. That is a feature in our language for the word head we can find in Latin and Hebrew as well. But we have other metaphors that we use for the word head, which would be like the words headwaters, trailhead, ahead, which all carry an idea of point of origination or source. Leader is not the only metaphor for head in English. And here is an important distinction between the Greek of the New Testament and English and even Hebrew. In the Greek of the first century, they did not use the word head or kephale to mean authority. Kephale as a metaphor meant point of origin or flow from. Kephale to the Greeks meant something other than leader when used in a metaphorical way. Here's one way that we know this to be true. 
For example, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, there are about 180 times that the Hebrew word for head was used in a metaphorical way to mean leader or ruler, like we would expect in English. But in almost every case, the translators used the Greek word arche, as in hierarchy, since the Greeks did not associate their word for head, kephale, with leader. This is because the meaning and metaphor of those passages in Hebrew would have been lost on Greek readers. You can also apply this understanding of kephale to Ephesians 5.23. In episodes 9 and 10, I've talked some about Ephesians 5.23, but I wanted to include this segment from Bruxy Cavey because he does a great job of breaking this down. Are you sure kephale, that is head, doesn't mean authority in these passages? Um, yes, the word for head, as we talked about, uh, not associated with authority in first century and not specifically within the biblical text. The Bible talks about the authority of Christ, talks about the headship of Christ, never talks about the two at the same time. Head is just not a natural word for authority. And so if you say, I want to argue that actually I think the husband being the head of the wife means he does have authority, I will say, okay, I will ride that train with you as long as you ride it all the way to the Jesus station. And then Jesus says, all right. This is what authority looks like. Authority means you lay it down. In the end, what that means is, regardless of whether you have a possibility one or possibility two, either way, a marriage should look, feel, and function egalitarian. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. When you look to the world, authority means I'm in charge, listen to me. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. I'll post the link to the rest of his talk, along with a link to his whole series on marriage in the show notes so that you can check that out. So let's go back to chapter 11, verse 3, and try out the Greeks' version of head as a metaphor. Even though it's pretty clear the Greeks did not associate head with leader the way that we do in English, this continues to be disputed in the current biblical discussion on gender equality. The way we interpret kephale should have a consistent metaphorical meaning for the three pairs we have in verse 3, which are between man and Christ, woman and man, and Christ and God. I call this interpretive strategy kephale and the three pairs. Just like Goldilocks in the three bears, the meaning of kephale should be just right, making sense in all three pairings by defining the word kephale the same way. Let's try it to see if translating kephale to origin or source is just right for our three pairs. The head, meaning source, of every man is Christ. Well, we know from Colossians 3.11 that Christ is all and in all. And John chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 tells us that he, Christ, was at creation. So, yeah, this reading takes on a whole new meaning when you understand head this way. And I'd actually like to meditate on that more. And you could argue that even though Adam was created from the dirt as his physical source, it was Christ that breathed life into him and animated him into a spiritual being. Let's try the next pair. The head, understood as source, of woman is man. This reminds me of how in Genesis 2, God created the woman from the man's side. He was literally her source. So yeah, that works. This is a beautiful image of oneness and equality that we discuss more fully in episode two. And for our third pair, the head, meaning source or place of origination of Christ, is God. This works. 
When you consider God's involvement in the incarnation of Christ, God sent his son as an extension of himself. In John 10 verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Yes, the Greek's metaphor for head works beautifully, and it even gives us more to ponder and meditate on. So remember, kephale and the three pairs, and that the original Greek metaphor for head is closer to the word we use for source or point of origin. Remember, think about a trailhead or headwaters. So we have some clarity established so far. Paul is addressing the Corinthians, reminding them to behave in service to others, not posing any additional stumbling blocks for the gospel to be known and understood. After all, as verse 3 says, we are all connected to each other through God and Christ who is our head. Man is not the authority over woman, but has a special connection and oneness with her as we learn in the creation accounts. And Paul, being the clever guy that he was, segues this topic of metaphorical heads to an issue involving the Corinthians' literal heads, as in the heads on their bodies. Paul addresses some problems with what the Corinthians were wearing and not wearing on their literal heads, given the context of what that signaled in that particular cultural context. Paul will also go on to use this opportunity to explore a deeper theological point involving our image and appearance. Verses 4 through 6 say, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Okay, so clearly something is going on here that requires a little background information for us to fully understand. For starters, keep in mind, this seems to be addressing an issue that is within the context of a church gathering. Let's also note that Paul here is assuming that women are involved in the gatherings of the early church. They weren't just making coffee, serving in the nursery, or giving the announcements. They were leading in prayer and prophesying, which isn't like the fortune-telling sense of prophesying, but more in the exhortation and teaching sense of sharing for the edification of those in attendance, which, if you think about it, kind of looks a lot like preaching. So first, looking at verse 4, why would it be dishonorable for a man to pray with his head covered? Well, Thankfully, we have some awesome New Testament scholars and historians who can explain to us why having or not having a covered head was a noteworthy issue for Paul and the Corinthians. During this time, there was the practice of men donning women's headgear during religious ceremonies to honor the goddess Dionysus. So for men, this issue is directly related to the appearance of a pagan practice that had to do with cross-dressing in service to a pagan goddess. Check out the show notes for more information on that. Paul is telling the Corinthian men that they actually dishonor themselves when they wear these female garments, as was known to occur in pagan cultic practices. As for verse 5, we learn that it's dishonorable for a woman to be participating in the church service with her head uncovered. Paul says she might as well have her head shaved. What is that all about? There's actually a very practical reason Paul says this. For women, the issue of head coverings is even more significant than it was for men. And here are some historical facts about head coverings from the first century. The head coverings women wore were not a sign of subordination, 
but were actually seen as a status symbol. Take this in, Mousko writes. These head-covering garments signified that a woman was married or widowed and that she was sexually unavailable. Wearing the usual garb of a Roman matron offered women protection against sexual harassment as it was illegal for a man to harass, ask for sex, or to molest a woman when she was out in public if she was dressed as a matron. A pala, or veil, did not signify subordination, as some have suggested. In fact, the most subordinate of women in Roman society did not wear veils. It was illegal for slaves, prostitutes, freed women, and women from the lowest classes to wear either a stola or pala head covering. In usual social contexts, they were forbidden by law from veiling their heads in public. There were no laws to protect poorer women or slave women from sexual harassment, and there were no laws to protect upper-class women who chose not to dress as matrons. The head covering was a status symbol that offered women some form of protection against sexual harassment, which lower-class women were actually not permitted to wear in public. However, probably over half of women in this time and place would not have had the status of a Roman matron and would have been in the lower disenfranchised class of freed slaves, slaves, and prostitutes. While these women were not permitted to wear a head covering out in public, you can imagine that in the co-ed setting of a Christian house church that they might have wanted to wear a head covering so as to not draw attention as being sexually available or vulnerable to other men in the group. I love how Cynthia Westfall explains it. So here's a minute or so of her lecture that she gives at the South African Theological Seminary. If you were a woman who had been a prostitute, we were not allowed to veil because it was sending the wrong message. You know, you're not an honorable, pious, and pure woman. You're not chaste. You cannot veil. If you were a slave, you were not allowed to veil because if you're a woman slave, there's no chance, no way that you haven't been sexually abused or whether you chose to or not doesn't matter. You're not an honorable, chaste, and pious woman because you have been a slave and you have been sexually available because you had no choice. And then the other thing would be, so you're a freed woman. Well, you were a slave, damaged goods. You have been sexually compromised. So anyone who's been sexually compromised is not allowed to veil. So who's not sexually compromised at this point? Well, you know, the aristocrats can pretty much protect their women. And so it's status, it's class. It's that I've, it's probably not that I've had control of my body, but I've had protection. And so now we see what Paul is saying, that if you get up in front of the church and you pray and prophesy with an uncovered head, that's a compromised message. It's not just that they think you're dishonored. They also are going, hey, hey, you know, they're thinking about you sexually. There could be prostitutes there because, again, most prostitutes were slaves, had no choice. A prostitute could come to faith and still not be able to be released from her bonds. You could be a slave woman, same thing. Paul's saying something radical, countercultural. He says, unlike the culture practices, everybody covers their head here. So what he's really actually saying is, that there are no restrictions on prayer and prophecy. Your past doesn't restrict you. The way the world has categorized you and labeled you, the way the world has shamed you, none of that restricts you. There's an open door to pray and prophesy, but when you're in the church, you're a new creature. You're a new creature in Christ and you are clothed with Christ. Part of the thing might have been that the uh, men in Corinth were saying that we're all family here, brothers and sisters, right? So you should be able to unveil. Or they were simply following the rules of the culture and saying, freed women, slaves and prostitutes don't veil. We don't veil, right? This is a status thing, right? Who do you think you are? 
And so Paul was telling the men of Corinth who those women were. Every woman here, I would guess at this point, would say, I would veil. <laughs> I would want to be veiled. If I walked into the church in Corinth, and this is what the veil meant, um, I would want to be veiled. I would not want to be sending out signals that say, everybody sexually harassed me. That's, that's how it works. I would want to veil. I'd want to be a new creature in Christ. That's why I joined this church. She is so great. Her full lecture is linked in the show notes. It's all there for you if you want it. You don't have to dig any deeper, but some of you are going to need to, and I'm here to help. Okay, so what about the shaved head business? Well, this was a form of punishing and humiliating women who were found to be adulterers. In Marge Mausko's article, which I'll link in the show notes, she cites Bruce Winter saying that by law, an adulteress could have her hair cut very short and she was no longer permitted to wear any garment indicative of a matron. Instead, she was compelled to wear a plain toga. These were signs of her disgrace. In other words, Paul is being critical of these head covering rules. The rules on the street about who can and who can't wear a head covering should not apply in the community of believers. You could paraphrase it this way. An uncovered head signals sexual availability and vulnerability which could have the same effect as inviting adultery, which we know has the consequence of a disgraceful shaved head. As verse 6 plainly reads, she should cover her head. The world's social distinction of class and honor or shame have no place in the church. This is one example of the ways that Paul elevates women. Since it was considered dishonorable for a woman to have an uncovered head, Paul invites all women to share in the status symbol of a covered head. Every woman can cover her head if she wants to. And Paul goes on to explain why in verse 7, which says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. We know from Genesis 1.27 that, of course, all humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. But here, Paul includes the word glory. The word for glory, doxa, can also be translated as reputation. Most take this to mean, in this honor-shame culture, that the honorable behavior of women attests to the glory or reputation of their male patriarch, while the honorable behavior of men adds to the glory or reputation of his god or gods. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that it's important to protect the reputation of the church and to consider how their actions and appearances are perceived by others. What you choose to wear or not to wear on your head contributed to the way that you were perceived by others. Mausko puts it this way, The implication of verse 7 may be that the conduct of a Christian man, in particular a man praying or prophesying with his hair or head in a certain state, affects the reputation and honor of God i.e. God's doxa. And Paul here reminds men that they are the image of God to reinforce this point. On the other hand, the conduct of a Christian woman, in particular a woman praying or prophesying with her hair and head in a certain state, affects the reputation and honor of her husband or father, i.e. the man's doxa or glory. Paul does not bring up the fact that woman is also made in the image of God because it doesn't add anything to the point he is making in verse 7. Paul goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, For man did not come from woman, 
but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. We should be clear, Paul is not denigrating women. He is simply reminding them of the mutuality and reciprocity of the genders that began in Genesis. Woman was created because it was not good for the man to be alone. Men and women working in partnership with each their unique traits and not in spite of their differences is in line with the creation design. This passage itself is structured as a chiasm. A chiasm is a biblical way of organizing ideas where the most important point would go at the center, and the center of this chiasm is what Paul says here in verse 10. So we want to make sure that we properly understand verse 10, which says, It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. So basically, Paul is saying that a woman should have the authority to get to decide what she wears on her own head, apparently because of something having to do with angels. Some people interpret the Greek angeli as in heavenly angels or messengers, but other biblical scholars translate angeli as simply messengers or even spies. Either way, the appearance of propriety is important. Whether you are trying to appear in a certain way for the sake of heavenly angels or for people who are visiting the church and will go back and report what they observe to others, the point is that women have the authority over their own heads. Whatever laws prohibit women from being able to cover their heads in public and so protect themselves from unwanted sexual overtures, these laws shouldn't be enforced in the church setting. Unfortunately, there is a little problem here. Many translations over the years have chosen to insert the phrase sign of before authority. It says, a woman ought to have a sign of authority over her head, which really leaves it ambiguous so that you could assume that the head covering is actually a sign of her subordination to men, which, as we've discussed, is totally not what the head covering signified. Head coverings were not a sign of being under one's authority. It was a sign of privilege and status. It's crazy and a little maddening to me that so many modern translations, like the ESV, the NRSV, the NASB, the old NIV, but not the new one, and others have inserted this phrase that is simply not in the original text. Translators think they're helping us because they assume that, of course, Paul does not mean to say that a woman has her own authority. Even the old King James Bible leaves that part out. Whew, wow, right? This example speaks to why biblical studies is so important for people to continue to pursue. We just can't leave these kind of interpretive decisions up to past generations. Understanding what the Bible says needs to be an ongoing pursuit. Let's sum up a few things so far. The passage that deals with some culturally sensitive issues regarding headgear begins with a theological metaphor that uses the imagery of head as a source to teach about the unity and oneness between Christ and man, man and woman, and Christ and God. Given all of that, Paul instructs men not to cover their literal heads, since this practice is considered to be dishonorable, and he reasons that it's better to let women have the authority to cover their heads in church, since for her, a head covering is honorable. After establishing that women have authority to do what they want with their heads, which in this case is to cover them, Paul completes the chiasm by circling back to his earlier points. 
which is what a chiasm is by definition. And here's how he does that. Given that the woman was created to meet the man's need, which he states in verses 8 and 9, their relationship is to be one of reciprocity. Paul circles back to this in verses 11 and 12. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Which even circles us back to verse 3, right? Paul then returns to matters of social propriety and honor by asking in verses 13 through 15, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. It seems like Paul is making room for people to decide what is best to wear given their particular situation. And Paul even suggests that a woman's long hair is itself a form of glory and a covering, regardless if she has the special head covering garment on or not. Also, we should note the implications Paul makes in regarding the woman's hair being her own glory. Women have their own glory too. They have their own identities and reputations. They are not simply an extension of whatever patriarchal system they happen to belong to. Again, Paul elevates the status of women, giving them each their own selfhood and authority. Marge Masco writes, Paul is saying something remarkable here, but as is too often the case, we have interpreted his words through a patriarchal lens and misunderstood them. And just in case we are getting too worked up about what to wear or not to wear, Paul goes back to the theme of warning against such legalistic mindsets and practices. In verse 16, he says, If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul returns to the theme of warning against becoming legalistic about these kinds of things, which he began with starting at chapter 10, verse 32. And also, just to reiterate, that's also how the chiasm structure works. Themes get repeated in reverse order. Thank you for hanging in to this long episode of Just Be. I hope that we've gotten some great takeaways from this passage. Even though we don't have similar conflicts regarding head coverings in our own cultures and churches, this isn't an obsolete passage of scripture. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 tell us, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, what are a few takeaways from this passage? While Christian theology itself is not defined or swayed by cultural norms, practices, and expectations, Christians must be sensitive to their surrounding culture. That is a resounding theme of 1 Corinthians. You have to work in and through accepted cultural norms, just like my mom when she was a missionary in West Africa. You have to go with the culture on the small stuff so you can have an impact in the culture on the big stuff. Just like it wouldn't have been helpful for my mom to be walking around West Africa with pants on, inviting men to her house for a Bible study, even with the best of intentions, that would have been very misleading and culturally ignorant. It's important for Christians to periodically take a look at their cultural traditions and make sure that their preferred traditions and ways of doing things are not unnecessarily countercultural and thus obscuring the gospel message. 
Given the egalitarian nature of our own culture in the West, I think it's worth taking a second look at passages that have historically hemmed women into subordinate roles and question if there's not a better way to understand them. Jesus, Paul, and the early church set a pattern for elevating women, men, slaves, outcasts, and misfits as co-equals in the Christian community. We need to continue to strive to make biblical equality an ever more reality in our Christian communities. As a past complementarian myself, I know it requires number one, humility, and number two, a ton of work to reframe the way we read whole sections of the Bible. But this is part of obeying the greatest commandment, which is to love God with our minds, as well as our hearts and strength. I invite you to meditate on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here, but also 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul describes what it is like to move past legalism and to have our convictions shaped by not our past experiences and understanding, but by the Holy Spirit. Verses 16 to 18 say, But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Holy Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, freedom is also there. None of our faces are covered with a veil. All of us can see the Lord's glory and think deeply about it. We are being changed to become more like Him so that we have more and more glory. And this glory comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for staying to the end of my longest episode in Just Be so far. Honestly, I didn't want to make it too long, but I didn't want to skimp out on you either by making it too short. Thank you for staying with me. You get a gold star. Remember, check out the show notes for more information. Trust me, this episode could have been longer. (laughs) Also, don't forget to subscribe and please share this with a friend. Peace and love to you. God bless.